James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. We won't be looking at these verses in detail this morning, but they kind of serve as a summary for our topic for the morning. I want us to consider... I want us to consider this morning that we as Christians may have not been thinking of the will of God in a biblical way. Instead, we've turned to something inward focused to our own hearts and what we're feeling rather than outward focused to uh, who God is, to the Word of God, and to the commands of God. Now think about the way you think about God's will. As a result of an unbiblical view of God's will, many Christians are filled with worry and fear that maybe they're going to miss God's best for them. Maybe they're going to miss God's will for them. Other, others may be paralyzed into being able, not being able to make any decisions at all because they're, they're afraid to make a decision. Still others might feel tremendous guilt for not knowing what God wants them to do or God's will for them. But in contrast to, to that view, the biblical view of God's will reminds us that our confidence is in God to know the future and to control the future, not in ourselves to know the future. The biblical view frees us up from worry and fear. It frees us to make decisions knowing that God is in control. And it frees us to love God and others because we know that love is His will for us. Love is the fulfillment of the will of God and the law of God. So let's look at... Um, James 4, 13 to 17 together. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into this or that city, spend the year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good that they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. I think in understanding the biblical view of God's will, we have to make a distinction between what we might call two wills of God. There is the sovereign will of God. Can you say that with me? The sovereign will of God. And then there's the moral will of God. Say that as well. The moral will of God. So there's the sovereign will of God and the moral will of God. I'd planned on covering both of these this morning, but for your benefit, <laughs> and as I progressed, I decided to break it up into two sermons so that we would be good on time. I wouldn't overtax your, your minds. So this morning we'll consider the sovereign will of God. Uh, and then next Sunday morning, Lord willing, as James says we ought to say, we'll consider the moral will of God. Uh, so let's, let's, let's think about the sovereign will of God. You've probably heard the word sovereign before. It means God is in control. It means He reigns over all. We think of a sovereign being a king or a ruler over a nation. The Baptist Confession of 1689 says this, God has decreed in Himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will, freely and unchangeably all things, whatever comes to pass. Now, that might sound a little complicated, so in simpler terms, here's what God's sovereign will refers to. His unchangeable plan for the course of history and for the future. 
If it happens, then it was a part of God's sovereign will. If it's a part of God's sovereign will, then it will happen. Right. Uh, this is the fir- uh, that's the first of the five characteristics, I think, that will help us understand better God's sovereign will. It is certain that it will be fulfilled. This, this will be the first of five characteristics to help us understand it. It is certain that it will be fulfilled. Consider what God says in Isaiah chapter 46, verses 8 through 11. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times to things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. In the context of Isaiah 46, God is setting himself apart from the idols of men. What can idols do? Anything? Can they accomplish their purposes? They have no purpose. God stands alone as the one true God who fulfills the plans that he makes. This is what God sets God apart from mere idols. God is sovereign. He is in control. He's powerful. And if He plans to do it, it is certain that He will accomplish His purposes. So first, it is certain that it will be fulfilled. Second, the sovereign will is detailed and includes all things. There are many passages of Scripture we could look at to show that God is sovereign over inanimate objects as well as living things. Think about how God created the universe. What did He do? He spoke it. Let there be light, and there was light. He created just by speaking. His power over creation was also demonstrated when Jesus was here on earth. Jesus spoke some words, too, that controlled uh, inanimate objects. The storm. Peace be still, and the storm was still. It was God who permitted Job to come under intense trial and suffering at the hands of Satan. But even through all that loss and pain, Job trusted the Lord and he confessed, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now we know it was Satan who was doing the tormenting. Satan was doing the evil, but ultimately God allowed it to happen to Job. It was a part of his sovereign will, a part of his sovereign plan. Listen to a few more verses which teach us about the sovereign will of God. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. It's it's no mystery to God which football team is going to win the toy cost. It's no mystery to God who's going to get the winning hand at poker. These things seem like chance to us, but as the author of Proverbs said, it's every decision is in the hand of the Lord. Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 19.21 Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And then Proverbs 21.1 The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. So the sovereign will of God is certain that it will be fulfilled. It's detailed and includes all things, but here's the thing, it's hidden from our sight. 
It's hidden except when it's revealed in Scripture. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. There are some things, many things, in the will and plan of God that we don't know about. They are secret to us. One of those things is when, how long we have on this earth, right? We know every one of us has a time that will come. And the Lord assures us that He knows the day too. He knows this, but it's secret to us. It's a part of His plan, but we have no idea how long we have to live on this earth. This is pointed out to us repeatedly in the Bible and specifically in that passage in James we read. James remind us, reminds us we don't know what tomorrow will bring, so he encourages us, us to say, if the Lord wills, the Lord wills. If the Lord wills, we will live and we will do this or that. It's up to the Lord if we do this. It's up to the Lord if we do that, if we fulfill these plans that we have. Our futures, our, our next year, our tomorrows, our lives are in God's hands. Whether we live or die is in the hand of the Lord. The psalmist says in Psalm 139, 16, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. All our days are written in the book of the Lord. All of our days. He knows every one of them. So it is hidden, and yet it is also supreme. It, it is over everything else. God's sovereign will is over our wills. And yet, we must say that it doesn't violate human freedom, nor does it make God an author of sin, the author of sin. This is important for us to think about. Some have said if God controls all things, if He is sovereign over all things, and if He ordains everything that comes to pass... That must make human robot, humans robots, right? After all, if God has already planned your life, there's nothing left for you to do. Is that right? Not at all. God has created us in a unique and special way in that we have freedom to make choices. You're not just a puppet on a string. We know the Bible speaks differently about our responsibility. He calls us to obedience over and over again. He calls us to hear His Word and to obey. He calls us to trust Him. We are told that we'll be held responsible for our words, thoughts, and actions. You see, according to, to Scripture, in a mysterious way, God is both sovereign over all things and we are free to make real choices. The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said this, of this clear teaching of Scripture. If then I find taught in one place that everything is foreordained, that is true. And if I find in another place that man is responsible for all his actions, that is true. And it's my folly that leads me to imagine that two truths can ever contradict each other. These two truths, I do believe, I do not believe, can ever be welded into one upon any human anvil, but they shall be in eternity. They are two lines that are so nearly parallel that the mind that shall pursue them the farthest will never discover they converge. But they do converge, and they will meet somewhere in eternity, close to the throne of God, where all truth springs from. 
Just because we cannot reconcile something like this in our minds doesn't mean they're not reconciled. These, this is a part of the, the, secret, the secret sovereign will of God. We have no idea how it works together, but it does. And then finally, a, a very comforting characteristic of the sovereign will of God is this. It is perfect. And it is working all things together for the glory of God and for the good of His people. God has a plan and it's moving towards His own glory and for the good of His people. You know Romans 8.28 For we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purposes. Let me read that again. We know that all things work together for those who love God and are called according to His purposes. His sovereign will is working all things together for His glory and for our good. There's one instance that really shows us the sovereign will of God on display for everyone to see and understand. It's the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. In the book of Genesis, Joseph's story begins when he had a dream at the age of 17 years old. Do you remember his dream? He dreamed that the, the wheat of his brothers would bow down to his wheat. So basically, he dreamed that his brothers would bow down to him and serve him. You think that went over too well with his brothers? No, not at all. They already didn't like him because his dad loved him a little bit more than the others, gave him a special uh, coat of many colors, and so this just made things uh, all the worse when he told them about this, this dream that he had. And then he had another dream, and he... He didn't learn from his, the first time, and he told them about that one as well. In this dream, his parents would come before him and bow down before him. Now his brothers had had enough. They were going to make a plan, and they were, they were going to take care of his dreams once and for all. They wanted to kill him, but one of his brothers, Reuben, wanted to, to keep him alive, wanted to, to save him some, somehow. So he thought, if I can convince them rather to throw him in a pit, then I'll rescue him and he'll be given back to his father. So they threw him into a pit, and while Reuben was away, by chance, or so it seemed, a group of travelers came by. So the brothers sold him into slavery. They dipped his colorful robe in some animal blood and told their father that Joseph had been eaten by a wild animal. That was only the beginning of what God had in store for Joseph. Pharaoh was the ruler of Egypt, and one of his officers just happened to come by, right? Just by chance came by and bought Joseph from the travelers. The scripture says the Lord was with Joseph in all that he do did and made him become very successful. Now, there were still up and downs in, G in Joseph's life, right? He went to prison, um, was falsely accused and thrown into prison, but the Lord rescued him and again brought him success to the point that he came, became the second in command in Egypt, second in command to Pharaoh. Through a dream that Pharaoh had, the Lord revealed there was going to be a great famine. There would be, three, there would be some years of really good harvest, but then there would be years of really bad famine. So Joseph interpreted the dream. He came, came to the uh, Pharaoh with a plan. We'll save up during the plentiful years and then we'll have enough during the years of famine. And that's exactly what they did. Because of the famine, 
People from all over the area came to Egypt, came to Joseph, asking for bread, buying bread from them, the bread that they had stored up, including Joseph's brothers and his family. The dreams that he had had came true. They were true. They had to come to Egypt to get food. And this set up a meeting between Joseph, second in command, and his brothers, who had sold him out, who had sold him into slavery. What would he do? Joseph knew that although they had done evil, God was the one who had the plan all along. That God was working through these events, no matter how painful they were. That God was there, keeping him alive, keeping him successful, and working through this terrible event to bring God glory and bring good to Joseph. Now how would you answer, how would you speak to your brothers when the time came for you to, them to meet you? They came, they came to you and they sold you into slavery. You knew it was them, but they didn't know it was you. How would you respond to that? Y'all are going to jail immediately. Y'all are going to pay for what you did to me. I'm not going to let this go unpunished. Justice will be served, but listen to how Joseph responds in Genesis 45, 4-8. Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, the big reveal. I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. How can Joseph say that? It was not you who sent me here, but God. They certainly treated him badly. They sold him into slavery, left him for dead for all they knew. And yet, because Joseph knows that God is sovereign, that he has a plan and that he's fulfilling it, he was able to say, God sent me. Joseph understood that his brothers were responsible for their sinful actions, but he knew that there was something underneath it all, a greater purpose, a plan for his good and for the good of God's people. Underneath it all was a God who is sovereign over all things and is working to fulfill his purposes. And it turns out that the truth of God's sovereignty is a great comfort to God's people. How is this helpful? How is this truth comforting to us? Well, for one, it means that if God is in control, we don't have to be. Anybody out there feel like you have to always be in control? We don't have to be. We can't be. God is in control. If we have a God who knows the future, then we don't have to know the future. If we have a God who takes care of tomorrow, then we don't have to worry about tomorrow. Brothers and sisters, on the authority of God's Word, I tell you, we do have such a God. A sovereign God who cares for the future. Listen to the words of our Savior from Matthew 6, 25-34. I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. 
They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O little, you little of faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. We need to understand it's not just unhelpful to worry. It's also sinful. When we worry, we're disobeying the very words of Jesus here in Matthew. When we worry, we're giving evidence of our lack of faith in God. Brothers and sisters, let's put to death the sins of the body. Let's put to death the sin of worry in our life. Don't make excuses for it, that it's just concern when you know it, it is worry, that it is anxiety. It's not. It's doubting God. And Jesus commands us not to worry. But take note of how he commands this. Even in giving us this command, he doesn't do so angrily or sternly, but compassionately. You can almost feel it in his words. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. The Father knows what's going to happen. The Father knows what you need. He's watching over you. He's in control. Trust in Him. Trust in me. You can trust me. We can trust Jesus. That's the first application. And another application from James is whether or not we include God or the thought of God in our plans. Do we just go about life as if God doesn't have a sovereign will? That our will is sovereign and that we will do whatever we please? Go wherever we please? Or do we keep it in our mind? You know, if this is God's will, then I'll do it. If this is God's will, then I'll live for another year. Another application has to do with how we go through trials. The scripture says in James 1, 2 through 3, listen to this, James 1, 2 through 3, count it all joy, my brothers when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Is that the first thing that comes to your mind in a trial? Consider it joy? Not at all. That's the last thing from That's the furthest thing from your mind. It, think about it. James says, consider it joy when you go through various trials. Consider it joy. If trials aren't good for us, there's no way we consider it, can consider it joy. We shouldn't. But if there's something more to trials than meets the eye, if God is allowing us to go through trials for some greater purpose, if our trials are for our ultimate good and for God's glory, then we must consider it joy when we go through trials. Why? Well, James answers, because you know that the testing of your faith is producing endurance. 
if you wanted to begin training for a marathon, 26.2 miles, right? A lifetime, miles on miles and miles. If you wanted to begin training for a marathon, what would you begin by doing? Maybe walking a certain distance, walking a mile, throwing some jogging into it, walking, then running, walking, then running, adding up the miles. You'd have some pain, maybe after the first week or first few times of doing, pain in your lungs and in your legs, but you'd get stronger. Then you'd begin running, running longer distances, little by little, four miles, then six miles. You'd build up to eight miles, and 12, and 14, and 16. Each time you went a further dis distance, you would feel the pain. You'd feel burning in your lungs, your legs. You would want to stop. Everything in you would be saying, why are you doing this to me? Stop. Stop running. And if you one day stopped and decided to go no further, you decided, okay, I'm going to stop, you wouldn't get any stronger, and you wouldn't gain any endurance. But if you pressed on, if you pressed on even through the pain, even through times when everything else in your body told you to stop, if you pressed on, then you would get stronger. You would gain endurance, and you'd be one step closer to running the marathon. And it seems to me that sometimes we Christians decide to stop right in the middle of a trial. Something gets hard, and Satan is telling us, stop. Stop going to church. Stop reading your Bible. Stop praying. It's not worth it. This is too painful. Just stop. And we stop. And we don't get any stronger. And we don't grow in our faith. And we don't grow in endurance. And we don't grow in holiness. But what if you kept pressing on? What if you kept going? Even when you felt like stopping. What if instead you said to Satan, Yeah, it hurts. I feel like quitting, but Jesus is all I've got. He's everything I've got. I can't stop in any way. He's in control, not you. So I'm just going to keep on trusting. Even in the midst of the pain, I'm going to keep praying. I'm going to keep reading the Scripture. Even if it feels like I'm not getting anything from it, I'm going to keep going. When you go through a, faith, a trial with faith in God, knowing He's in ultimate control, knowing that He is good and knowing that He's working things out for your ultimate good, then you'll be strengthened to run with endurance the race of faith that is set before us. You will grow stronger. You will grow in endurance. You will grow in holiness, in likeness to our Savior Jesus, who endured all the way to the end. He didn't stop. He didn't give in to the, the cries of Satan. Think about Jesus. Like Joseph, he was rejected by his own family, by those close to him. He, he was rejected by his own people. The Lord's hand was upon him, and he was successful at everything he did. He preached the gospel, and he forgave sinners, and he healed the sick. He rose people from the dead. He was a ruler, too, like Joseph, right? They called him the king of the Jews, mockingly. However, Unlike Joseph, Jesus wasn't rescued in his time of need. Jesus wasn't pulled out of the pit and raised to power. Rather, he hung there on the cross. He hung there on the cross defeated and forsaken by God. And there he was accomplishing what we could not 
accomplish for ourselves. We cannot please God on our own. All we do is tainted by sin and ugly in God's sight. Not only have you done evil in His sight, the good things that you see that you've done, they too are tainted with sin for the wrong reasons, wrong motivations, wrong attitudes, not in faith or for God's glory. For all of this, you, I, we deserve hell. We deserve punishment because of our sin. But here's where Jesus comes in. He died as a sacrifice for sinners like us. And just as the Israelites could go to Egypt, could go to Joseph to receive bread so they could stay alive, all who go to Jesus, who's the bread of life, all who go to Him will receive spiritual life, will receive nourishment, the forgiveness of sins, and eternal life. And He calls on you. He calls on me, everyone, to repent of their sins and trust in Him. We could say that to repent means to make a radical shift in your thinking. To turn away from the things you once loved, your sin and your selfishness, and to turn to what God wants instead. To trust in Jesus means you believed, believe that He died on the cross for your sins and you rely upon Him to save you. It means you cling to Him like a drowning man clings to a life raft, a life preserver everything you've got you hold on to Jesus friends I pray that you do that today I pray that you repent Christians and non-Christians turn from our sins and trust in Jesus if you haven't done that come and talk to me after the service let me pray with you this is more important than anything else you have to do this afternoon or for the rest of your life I want to close this morning's message by pointing you to the lyrics of an old hymn written by William Cowper called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. <clears throat> Listen to how he understood the sovereign will of God. God moves in a mysterious way His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up His bright designs and works His sovereign will. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning, frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err, and scan His work in vain. God is His own interpreter, and He will make it plain. And these lyrics have a new dimension when you understand what William Cowper's life was like. He was a Christian. But he was oppressed by depression for most of his life. Some Christians don't actually like to talk about him much because of that. Because his life, was, his life was so dark and it seemed like he could never get over his depression. And yet if we look at the words to this hymn, we can see that even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of sorrow and trial, Cowper trusted in God. He trusted Him. He trusted that one day all would be understood 
and the bright light of Jesus' face would shine through the dark clouds and overcome His sorrow with great joy. And if we belong to Him, we can be sure of that as well, for He has promised it to us. And He always makes good on His promises. The plans that He has made are as good as done. And if we trust Him, we can be sure that He's working for His glory and for our good. Let's bow in prayer. Father, I pray for those who are here today who are going through a trial. And they have struggled to trust You. Lord, we know it's not easy. But I pray that You would strengthen them by Your grace, by the power of Your Spirit, to understand You are in control and that you would give them an extra measure of faith to trust in you through this hard time. Father, I pray that you would gather us together as the body of Christ to comfort one another, to remind one another that you are in control and that you are working even in the midst of painful situations. Help us to comfort one another, to encourage one another. Father, I pray for the one here who doesn't consider you at all in his plans. He comes to church on a regular basis, but he doesn't think about you when he's alone. He doesn't care for your word. I pray, Lord, that you would convict his heart. That you would show him that he is not in control, but that you are in control. Break our hearts, Lord, of our own self-confidence, of our own self-dependence, that we would be dependent upon you alone. Lord, we ask that you would work in us by your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.